I don't want to make a joke out of it, but today you and I are still here. According to Harold Camping, Jesus was to return yesterday. You may have seen the billboard is pictured here. You may not have seen one, but you've obviously seen one on television or in the newspaper and magazines. It's been all over the place. Camping was convinced that Jesus would return yesterday, Saturday, May 21st. And furthermore, that on October 21st of this year, that the, the world would come to an end. Well, the former didn't happen, and I'm a little skeptical of the latter at this point. But you need to know that Harold Camping is not the first person or the first organization to predict either the return of Jesus or the end of the world. As a matter of fact, there have been hundreds of such predictions since Jesus ascended into heaven. I just want to share with you a few of those that are a little more recent. The Jehovah Witnesses, well, they predicted the start of Armageddon in 1914. And then again in 1975, and then again in 1994. And and in fact, Jehovah's Witnesses have predicted the end of the world nine times over the course of the last century or so. Piazzi Smythe, using the calculations based on the pyramids, predicted that the world would end in 1960. An article ran in Newsweek magazine stating that an alignment of planets in 1982 could very well spell doom for the earth. In 1991, Louis Farrakhan predicted the Gulf War was the final war on earth. And the same Harold Camping, who put up billboards such as this, in 1994 predicted that Jesus would return and the world would end. He said he made a calculation in his math, uh, an error in his calculation. Well, in light of all this, and in light of what God's Word says, I want to share with you two biblical truths that you can count on this morning. The first biblical truth is this. Jesus will return at some point, and there will be a day of judgment. You can count on that. The Bible says at numerous places that Jesus will return, and that there will be a day of judgment, an end time. The second biblical truth that you can count on is this. No one on planet earth knows when that will be. So when you hear these predictions, I don't think God's going to give anyone the satisfaction of allowing them to be right on this one. What the scripture says is very plain. No one knows about that day or hour, not even the angels in heaven, nor the son, but only the father. In light of those two truths then, we should always be ready. I'm amazed at the people who were scrambling in the course of this last week, thinking that Jesus just might return. And my thinking was, well, you're kind of waiting a little bit late, aren't you? You know, you're trying to bring this thing down to the wire. You want to live for yourself until you know Jesus is coming back and then try to put on a show to impress him. I don't think that's what God calls us to do in the scriptures. He calls us to be ready, he calls us to be vigilant, but he never calls us to put on a show at the last minute, but to live in such a way as to believe that any moment could be the last moment. Now, when we look at the prophecy of Zephaniah, you're going to see that Zephaniah has a lot of of, of gloom and doom. 
How many of you remember the old TV show, Hee Haw? There you go. Some of you are going, what? Hee Haw. It was kind of a, a country show, I guess you could say. It was a, a variety show with, with music and, and kind of joking around. And, and it, was, it was pretty funny, although my kids would probably think it was corny. Uh, you know, it was pretty funny at the time, and, and that was kind of the family thing. We'd gather around the TV and watch Hee Haw. Was there was one episode on Hee Haw, or one of the, 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 the routines that they did often, where they had these four guys, sometimes they'd be sitting on a porch, sometimes they'd be sitting by a still, and they'd sing a little song, Gloom, Despair, and Agony on Me. Now, I actually thought, who could I get from the congregation to come up here and dress in overalls and sing that song? And had I had more time, I think I would have had Jim Metis. Bob Christian, Tom Robinson, and Mallory Granitz come up here and do their rendition of gloom, despair, and agony on me. Well, when you open and begin to read the prophet Zephaniah, it's almost as if you could picture four guys sitting on the steps of the temple singing this song because he does predict a lot of doom and gloom. So what you need to understand is just because we don't know the time doesn't mean there isn't a time coming. Zephaniah, if you've got your Bibles on, I invite you to open there. If you're, if you're visiting with us, we are, we're going through the, the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And, and we've, we've kind of moved through and we've made a good run at it. And really, we only have a, a few more left. Last week, Habakkuk. This week, Zephaniah. For those of you who've been with us, you've probably got something shoved in there so you can find it very easily. Don't be embarrassed if you can't. Uh, you can always go to the front of your Bible, look in the index. That's actually the easiest way to find it. And uh, you're going to want to kind of have your finger there in Zephaniah as we look at it today. The, prophet, the prophecy of Zephaniah begins with a message of extreme judgment. If you'll look with me in verses 2 and 3, it says this, chapter 1. I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. I will sweep away both men and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. The wicked will have only heaps of rubble when I cut off man from the face of the earth, declares the Lord. And then he goes on in verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter, the shouting of the warrior there. Let me take a few moments to talk about this day of the Lord, because you, you encounter it in Scripture a number of times. In fact, there are 26 references to the day of the Lord in the Bible. 19 of those occur in the Old Testament prophets. The remainder occur in the New Testament. That doesn't include references to uh, phrases like that day or the day or that great day, which also refer to the day of the Lord. But we'll just look at the ones that specifically deal with the day of the Lord. Now, when it talks about the day of the Lord, it's referring to a day of judgment against sin but also a day of hope for the righteous remnant. That is, those who believe that even in the midst of judgment, there is hope. And in Zephaniah, just as in many of the other prophets that we read, what we see is that sometimes there is a dual fulfillment or an overlapping of the prophecies when they refer to the day of the Lord. Take a look at this image on the screen in front of you. I guess it's kind of comical looking, but... If you can imagine that the guy on the left-hand side is a prophet, and he's looking at the day of the Lord, he sees that there are some things that are imminent and near, but there are also some things that are far. In other words, 
In the Bible, the day of the Lord is going to reference both that ultimate final day of the Lord when, when God wraps it all up, but it also references what we might consider smaller days of the Lord. That is times of, of God's judgment and redemption in the short term. That there were days of the Lord coming, but there's an ultimate day of the Lord coming. And when a prophet looked at the day of the Lord, he would see those things that God was revealing that was near, but he'd catch a glimpse of those things that were far. And so what we see in the words of the prophets are often that near and far put together. And that's why when we go back and take a look, for instance, at the prophecies concerning Jesus, they certainly were a foretelling of the coming of the Messiah. But often mixed in there were elements of a judgment or redemption that was going to come sooner. And so this kind of gives you a picture, an image in your mind. When he's talking about the day of the Lord, there's some things that are going to be soon, but there are going to be some things that are going to be the ultimate day of the Lord that are going to come at the end of time. In other words, the day of the Lord is a period of time when God directly intervenes in human events to bring judgment on sin and or salvation to the righteous. There's kind of a layman's definition of what the day of the Lord is. It is a day of judgment, but also a day of redemption. Now let's take a moment because we, we usually try to give you a little bit of background on who these guys are that are, that are delivering the prophecies. And I want to do the same thing with Zephaniah. Zephaniah was a descendant of King Hezekiah. We know that because we can trace in verse 1 back, he, this, he's the prophet that actually gives us a little bit of his lineage. So we can trace it back. He is uh, descended from King Hezekiah. Now, King Hezekiah was one of the few good kings in that time in Judah. And therefore, to trace your lineage back to him would be to connect to one of the, one of the good kings. But from that, They would not have another good king until the king who was currently on the throne at that time, who was Josiah. Now, Zephaniah's Zephaniah's name means the Lord hides. That doesn't mean that God is playing hide-and-seek with us. It doesn't mean that God is hiding from us. It means that God hides us in the time of calamity. You, God, are my hiding place. You are my stronghold, my fortress, and ever-present help in time of trouble. And just as with many of the other prophets, Zephaniah's name and his prophecy run parallel. We also know that Zephaniah, or we can figure that Zephaniah prophesied between 630 and 625 B.C. And again, a few years before, a few years after, we're, that's a long time ago, so don't hold me to those years But we certainly know that it was during the reign of King Josiah, but likely, because of what he says, likely before the reforms that King Josiah put into play, which would have started around, say, 622, 621 B.C. Zephaniah prophesied in and about Judah, the southern kingdom. Because you'll remember, 722 B.C., the northern kingdom fell to the Assyrians. So now those people are scattered. They're in exile. So this message is to Judah and Jerusalem. And finally, Zephaniah's ministry overlapped with those of Jeremiah and Nahum. And so we tend to think of prophets like kings, that one came in succession one after another. But that's not the case. They overlap their ministries. And often, even the messages would be parallel. 
Now, last week as we considered Habakkuk's prophecy, we looked at the judgment that God said he would surely bring on the people of Judah and Jerusalem. But we didn't really go into the depths of why God was going to do that. In other words, what was so bad that God had to bring destruction on the holy city? Bring the walls of Jerusalem itself down. What was so bad? Zephaniah gives us a window into exactly what it was that was so bad. And so if you'll look with me in verses 4 through 9, we're going to look at some of what he says. God says, I will stretch out my hand against Judah and against all who live in Jerusalem. I will cut off from this place every every remnant of Baal. The names of the pagan and idolatrous priests, those who bow down on the roofs to worship the starry host, those who bow down and swear by the Lord, but who also swear by Molech, those who turn back from following the Lord and neither seek the Lord nor inquire of him. Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has appeared, has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. On the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the princes and the king's sons and all those clad in foreign clothes. On that day, I will punish all who avoid stepping on the threshold, who fill the temple of their gods with violence and deceit. Now, what do we find here? We find at least seven affronts to God. Seven gross sins that would bring judgment. The first of those affronts to God were the, was the worship of Baal. Now, you'll remember from our previous discussions that Baal was the Semitic god of fertility. And it had gotten so bad in, in, in Judah and in Jerusalem that the people could not distinguish between the worship of the Lord and the worship of Baal. In other words, it had become intermixed. They, they'd go to the temple on Saturday and they'd worship the Lord. But during the week, they were honoring Baal with their sacrifices and Baal with their worship. They saw God, the Lord as kind of a, a Sunday-only God or Saturday-only God in their case. And the rest of the week belonged to Baal. And so they were still worshiping Baal. After all these years and all they'd been through, they were worshiping Baal. The second thing that we noted was unfaithful priests. That is, priests who mixed the worship of God with the worship of other gods. Pagan, he calls them. The third thing we see is the worship of the starry hosts, the sun and the planets. Now, I took a, a course in, in college, an astronomy course in class. It was an absolutely fascinating course. Really enjoyed doing that, but that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about the Hubble Space Telescope. What we're talking about is people who looked at the stars and the planets and as they moved through the sky, as they looked at the motions of the heavens, instead of going and saying, God, look at, look at, look at this great thing you've done, how you set all the stars in the heaven and set the planets in their motions, instead of doing that, they began to worship the planets, began to worship the stars seeing them as their gods, and they run their lives. 
Now, by the way, just in case any of you are still tempted to look at horoscopes, you need to know that thinking grew directly out of this kind of worship. We also see, number four, the worship of Molech along with the worship of the Lord. Again, not only worshiping Baal along with the Lord, they're worshiping Molech along with the Lord. Now, who is Molech? Molech was a Phoenician god. And the significant thing about this god was that, and again, false god, not real, didn't didn't exist. But in the worship of Molech, there was the sacrifice of children. And that was an abomination in the sight of God. And that the people could worship the Lord and also worship Moloch showed just their lack of understanding and reverence for God. To go on, there was unfaithfulness in the people of God. The people themselves were unfaithful to the Lord. Beyond that, there were unfaithful rulers. The kings, the princes, they were unfaithful. And finally, number seven, is bringing pagan rituals into the temple. Now, you may, have, may or may not have noticed that. Those who avoid stepping on the threshold. Those who avoid stepping on the threshold. We look at that and we go, well, what's that all about? Were they afraid they were going to trip? No. It was a superstitious kind of ritual. Now, you take a look at all these and you go, that's quite a list. Those are quite a few affronts to God. Compromises in their faith. But there were more. Let me share two more with you that grow out of verses 12 and 13. At that time, God says, I will search Jerusalem with lamps and punish those who are complacent, who are like wine left on its dregs, who think the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. Their wealth will be plundered, their houses demolished. They will build houses but not live in them. They will plant vineyards but not drink the wine. So added to their religious unfaithfulness, we also see that they put their confidence in money and possessions. They found their security, their hiding place in the things that they owned. Now, living in this day and in this time, and any of you have had any years under your belt at all, you know just how foolish it is to put your security in your bank account or in the stock market or in the price of your home or in the price of gasoline, in any of that. If you're putting your hope there, then you will be sorely disappointed. But to add to that, the people were also acting as practical atheists. So at first they were at ease in their riches. But secondly, they were acting as practical atheists. Now what's a practical atheist? A practical atheist is this. Someone who claims to believe in the Lord, but who lives as if he doesn't matter. Did you notice what they said here as they thought about the Lord? Their attitude was very plain, very simple. They said, they think to themselves, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. In other words, they live as if God doesn't matter, though they honor him with their lips. 
Now, when Zephaniah considered all of that, he delivered God's verdict, God's response. We find it in verses 14 through 18. The great day of the Lord is near, he says, near and coming quickly. The cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there. That day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner of the towers. I will bring distress on the people. They will walk like blind men because they've sinned against the Lord. Their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like filth. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole world will be consumed. For he will make a sudden end of all who live in the earth. Now you read that and and I want you to remember what we've learned about God thus far. We've learned that God is not quick-tempered. And God is not ill-mannered. He operates based on his love, mercy, and compassion. But he will bring discipline and judgment. Judgment on sin. And discipline on his people so that they might turn from their fruitless, worthless ways. And come back to him. The prophet Jonah summed it up very well when he said, I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. You see, even though God was going to bring this judgment, his heart was still with his people. He still wanted them to turn. Now, I've shared with you the anger, the justifiable anger of God towards his people. But that's not the end of the story. Listen to the heart cry of God in, verse, in chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Gather together. Gather together, O shameful nation, before the appointed time arrives. And that day sweeps on like chaff. Before the fierce anger of the Lord comes on you. Before the day of the Lord's wrath comes on you. All you humble of the land who do not what he commands. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Perhaps you will be sheltered on the day of the Lord's anger. That's God's heart cry for his people. Judgment is coming. Seek the Lord. Turn to him in humility. And he can be your hiding place. As the Lord cried out for his people back then to turn, I believe he's crying out to us even now. Seek the Lord. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. Find your shelter in him. For he is our hiding place that's good news for some of us 
but it may not be good news for you. Because as you hear this, the Holy Spirit's been speaking to your heart. He's been bringing deep conviction on your life. You see, if Jesus had happened to show back up yesterday, you would not have been ready. And you would have been left. And you know it. When you hear of the day of the Lord's wrath for you, it is not a day that you believe you will be hidden in Him, but a day that you will be exposed to the fullness of His judgment. I got to tell you, God doesn't want that for you. Did you hear His heart cry? Seek me. Seek righteousness. Seek humility. And you'll find in me a shelter. You see, we've got to remember that God will judge sin. But we also must remember that he is compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, and who relents from showing his judgment. Our God is holy, and he will not tolerate sin. But the good news is he will forgive sin. He will not tolerate it, but he will forgive it. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to die on the cross to pay the price, to pay the penalty for your sin and for mine, so that when sin is swept away in his judgment, he will be our hiding place. For you see, today in your life, sin and judgment can be swept away. And you can remain safe and secure in the Lord. That's what God wants for you. And so I have a challenge for you this morning. It's threefold. The first challenge is this. Believe in Jesus Christ. And if you are a believer, you need to grow in that faith. Believe in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you. There is only one way out. There is only one escape from God's judgment. And that is through his son Jesus Christ who took upon himself that judgment. That's how much God loves you. That's how much Jesus loves you. That he would take the judgment that was rightly yours and he would place it on himself so that you might become the righteousness of God. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. Believe in Jesus Christ. That's God's call to you. But if you're already a believer, let me tell you, don't grow complacent. Don't don't be at ease. You need to remember God has a spiritual growth planned for you. Who you are today is not all he wants you to be. And you may not be satisfied with where you are spiritually right now. I kind of hope you're not. I kind of hope you look at your life and you say, God, there's some things you still need to chip away and some things you need to add. There's some attitudes that I have, God, that need to be changed. There's a selfishness that I carry around with me that needs to be changed. There's a self-centeredness that I have, God. It needs to change. And God, I want to submit myself to you and not only declare, God, that I believe in you, but that I want to follow you. And I want to be more like you.
with each passing day. God has that in store for you. Believe and grow in that belief so that you might be more like Jesus. Don't don't be a practical atheist. Secondly, belong to his body, the church. And, And beyond that, develop an authentic connection with your family of faith. You need this. You need to be connected to the body of Christ in an authentic, genuine way. Now, believe me, I'm glad you're here on Sunday mornings. I'm glad that you gather to worship God. But you need to be connected, tied in to the body of Christ. Now, we can't make you do that, but we can certainly encourage you to do it. And we've got person after person that can testify to you the power of that connection, that belonging, the support, the encouragement that you receive, but also that you're able to share with others. What I've discovered over the years is that people will be excited about coming and uniting with the church, but if they never get intimately connected with the body of Christ, then what we find is that they begin to drift off. Their orbit gets further and further out until one day we go, where is so-and-so? I haven't seen him in a while. Neither have I. But if you'll establish that connection, and, and certainly there are many ways to do it, but, but as church we offer our grace groups, and we just encourage you to come and connect to a grace group. Become involved in it. And I know it's not convenient, but it is worth it. The third thing I'd call you to is very simple, and that is uh, to become. To become more like Jesus by living out your faith in a world that desperately needs to see him. Folks, Harold Camping's organization spent millions of dollars plastering billboards all over our country and in Europe and in Asia. Millions of dollars. I got to tell you, this world doesn't need billboards proclaiming the date that Jesus is going to return. This world needs authentic expressions of Christ in their communities. That's what they need. They do not need practical atheists who show up, make a show on Sunday, but who live as if God doesn't matter during the week. This is what the world needs. This is what God calls us to And I invite you to be a part of it. Maybe you need to take a step of faith now to believe in Jesus Christ. That initial step over that threshold into the family of faith. Maybe you need to come and just confess to God. God, I've taken you for granted. I believe just like those people in Jerusalem. Just like you didn't care. Just like you didn't matter. And today I want it to stop. And I want to live in such a way that I show it does matter. That Jesus is Lord. And that I do have a life, a home in heaven. Others of you may need to take that step to to belong. To say, you know what, I need to connect with this church family. God's leading me here, and I know he is. And I've I've, I've put it off long enough. And and today I want to take that step and say, this is where I belong. And help me get connected. Help me connect with other believers. And some of you just need to make that decision today. All right, God, I've messed around with it long enough. My becoming starts right now. 
I want to be more like Jesus. My attitudes, my actions, I want to be more like Him with each passing day. Whatever your decision, in a few moments, I want to give you a chance to respond.